<laughs> Welcome to another Kirby's Kids Holiday Special. And we're Kirby's Kids. Exactly. The Kids Talk. Your monthly graphic novel review. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we are reviewing Batman the Killing Joke, our November graphic novel of the month for Alan Moore Month here on Kirby's Kids. And here to review this epic work that would set the roadmap for the Batman and Joker dynamic for decades to come is none other than Doc. Doc, how are you? I'm great, Angus. How are you today? I am doing great, Doc. Wow. I mean, Batman the Killing Joke. This was a one-shot with a cover date of July 1988. It was published in March of 1988. This critically acclaimed author, Alan Moore, redefined graphic novel storytelling with Watchmen and, of course, V for Vendetta. In Batman the Killing Joke, he takes on the origin of comics' greatest supervillain, the Joker, and changes Batman's world forever. And indeed he did. I mean, you have the grinning engine of madness and mayhem known as the Joker here. That All that separates the sane from the psychotic. Freed once again from the confines of Arkham Asylum. He's out to prove his deranged point. And he's going to use Gotham's city's top cop, Commissioner Jim Gordon, as his brilliant and beautiful daughter, Barbara, to do this. Now, Batman must race to stop his arch nemesis before his reign of terror claims two of the Dark Knight's closest friends. Can he finally put an end to the cycle of bloodlust and lunacy that links these two iconic foes before it leads to its fatal conclusion? And is the horrifying origin of the Clown Prince of Crime finally revealed? Will that thin line that separates Batman's nobility and the Joker's insanity snap once and for all. And that is the teaser, the synopsis we get from the publisher DC on this one. This is indeed stunningly illustrated. You have Brian Boland here working his magic. You got legendary writing of Alan Moore. And this very similarly, Doc, to Batman. You know, the Dark Knight that you had Miller doing. This was the second sonic boom for Batman in the 80s when this book was published. Because there were reverberations throughout the comic book industry and, dare I say, the entire entertainment industry as a whole would be massive. It's it is. It's the the influence. I, I can't think of any one shot comic that's had the impact, not just on Batman or on like a particular storyline, just on comic books in general. I I can't think of anything off the top of my head. May, Kingdom Come may come close because of how uh, how loved it is, but as far as just pure influence, more never fails to just really um just 
blow my mind. I mean, granted, this is not the first time either one of us has read this story before, but just rereading it, uh, it's been a while since I've re- I've read it, and it's just it's just reminded about just what a brilliant writer that Alan Moore is, and he's not afraid to go in places, and sometimes he's not always happy with where he goes, um, which we'll get to, but it's, um, um, you, have to, you have to respect him. You know, he didn't think he was writing something that was canon, so he kind of had freedom to do that, and, uh, and it's very rare that something ends up becoming canon that wasn't meant to, that was not in the main DC universe and how it becomes so, that's how influential this is, that it just became canon, at least at least some uh, elements from it. Maybe not the whole story, but some elements in it definitely um, are still um, reverberating in DC to this day. Indeed, Doc, indeed. With that said, let's go ahead and start us off with how we always do, with a little Kirby Colonel, a little kernel of knowledge about our namesake Jack and the connection between Jack and Batman and Joker in Detective Comics, issue number 71. Hey, Wilford, fire up the tractor. Time to harvest another Kirby Colonel. All right, Doc, in our Kirby Colonel today, we have what I believe is the first emergence of Jack Kirby's name being associated with Batman and Joker. However, not directly, but sharing the same pages in the anthology book that is Detective Comics from DC. Now, Detective Comics, Volume 1, Issue Number 71, was published in January of 1943. The Batman story in there is Batman, A Crime a Day by Bill Finger and Bob Kane. Now, also sharing pages in that same book, is Boy Commandos, A Break for Santa by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. And this is a bit of a gem here, Doc, because 1943, you're in the throes of World War II. You've got Jack and Joe going off to war. They were churning out so many comics in anticipation of them leaving the industry to go contribute and fight in the war. And not only did you have this fever pitch happening over on Newsboy Legion, but you also had it happening over on Boy Commandos. And sure enough, we begin a holiday-themed issue here, uh, a story, excuse me, to be included in this Detective Comics number 71, the Boy Commandos Break for Santa. And this is quite a, quite a bit of a gem here, and lots of fun with those allied Boy Commandos and their hijinks and Santa and delivering of presents during, you know, war-torn Europe and all that good stuff. So it really a nice little hidden gem here and one where Jack would share the same pages uh, with one Batman. And of course, A Crime a Day is one of those classic tales of Batman and Joker that Bill Finger and Bob Kane would bring to life. All right, now, Doc, let's head over for a little creative chatter about our writer, Alan Moore, and our illustrator, Brian Boland. Whoever is this artist and this writer, I must meet them. Creative chatter. Alan Moore, I mean, Doc, really, what more can be said about Alan Moore? And frankly, I, I, I found it a bit of a challenge to try to share some new insights about Alan. So I went over to the British Council of Literature to see what they had to say about Alan Moore. And this is 
what they had to say about Allen. And this is a little more of a critical reflection on Allen. One of the transformative figures in the history of graphic novel art. Hmm. That's interesting because Alan right then and there has problems with the use of the word graphic novel because he thinks yep. it's too, too uppity. But let, let's just roll with this one. Alan Moore has somehow achieved global acclaim whilst remaining an underappreciated enigma. His works aptly described as a peculiar, peculiarly unsung triumph of British culture. Through seminal series such as V for Vendetta and Watchmen, Moore has radically extended the boundaries of comics during a three-decade career, now into its fourth. His works helped make a previously underappreciated form acceptable, catalyzed contemporary recognition of its literary potential, and assembled a diverse audience that unites mainstream and counterculture readerships. He did so through books and artworks that are instantly recognizable for their elusive, multi-layered sophistication, their anarchist politics, and for the wit and humanity with which they overturn conventional genres. The New York Times in 2006 hailed him as a darkly philosophical voice in the medium of comic books. As the Chicago Tribune put it in 2009, his body of work almost single-handedly reinvented the comic book, transforming its language, broadening its scope, and deepening its intellect. Famously eccentric, prolific, and willfully underappreciated, or excuse me, unpredictable, his career is also riven with fascinating contradictions as a result the comparison that Slate made in 2006 has seemed to many a natural one. Moore is comics Orson Welles, a genius formalist with a natural collaborative impulse and a habit of taking an overambitious projects. His work is alternatively groundbreaking and painfully lazy. <laughs> He often coasts on his cleverness for a quick paycheck. Hmm. A fundamental first step in appreciating more is to dispense with the term graphic novel. Since the beginning of his career, he has distanced himself from a, that label that he dismisses as pompous phrase thought up by some idiot in the marketing department of DC. <laughs> I prefer to call them big expensive comics, as he told The Telegraph in 2007. This gets to the heart of the iconoclast middle path Moore aims to chart in his works. As Bernice Murphy of Trinity College Dublin puts it, Moore is basically a mainstream reformer. He's made an explicit decision to work in genre comics, but to try to do something broadly entertaining with a lot of craft. Second, it is important to recognize that though his career has rested on a series of collaborations with a disparate group of artists, Moore is best seen as an auteur. His forensically detailed scripts play to the strengths of his various collaborators, but are always essentially a product of Moore's literary and visual imagination. Certain of the characteristic 
methods such as the customary flourish whereby the action will pause and readers are subjected to jump cuts into a character's backstory or into the text that the characters are reading are conceptual and visual motifs that have precise origins in Moore's scripts. Moore's career can often seem sprawling and diffuse. What follows here focuses on the critical reputation of just three of his achievements. And this would go on to Chronicle V for Vendetta, Watchmen, and From Hell. Well, Doc, two out of three we've already reviewed, and the third V for Vendetta is up next year for us to review. And the intriguing late work of Lost Girls, a quartet of works that demonstrates the range of his achievements. And this article would go on to then break all of this down. But I thought the introduction to that it gives a really good encapsulation of the complex character that is one Alan Moore. Doc, do you have any reflections on what I just read there? Yeah, it's it's funny. The thing that really jumped out and stuck with me was how he said, uh, often lazy writer. And I'm like, wow, I, I would, there's a lot of things you could call more, but after reading like Providence and um, uh, From Hell and Watchmen, lazy would not be one of those. I, you know, I, I, I he writes such layered and um and, and deep um uh and very intricate storylines that he brings all these different things together uh, it's just it's an interesting take though i mean i can see what the uh what the uh what that guy was saying about moore's writing and it's um i mean he's 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 always been since his first thing as most uh, i don't know i shouldn't say most but for, at least for me my first introduction was was reading um watchmen the graphic novel. I remember uh, I didn't even own it. I it, I was uh, it was my freshman year in college, and um, a guy that lived that, down the hall from me, he had it. He was a big comic book reader, and he and he was like shocked. He goes, "You've never read this?" <laughs> and I was like, "No." And he lent it to me, and uh, I read it, and then I immediately went out and bought it, and I read it again. It just it, it just. No, it's something I've never read before, and then that's what started me on my Alan Moore road. Um, I went to um um swamp thing after that because his stories are just amazing and i the guy i i really i really can't say there's anything that i i hated from him there's some stuff that we weren't crazy about like when we talked about um some of his different themes and stuff but uh he's always interesting you always have to hand him that and i think that's where his that's where his strength is he can write such different stories and but he always brings that that layered and uh, very intricate kind of network of different stories. And they all come together to support that main idea that he's trying to get across. And I've, all, I've always loved him, and I always will. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, Doc, I agree with you. I'm also a big Alan Moore fan. And my first introduction was to Alan Moore was through the cinematic adaptations of his works. Now, mind mm. you, Alan would most likely cringe to hear that coming out of my mouth, <laughs> as he's never been fond of any adaptation of any of his works and much prefers his original works to anything else and viewing them as being far superior. Well, having read that, I then went to the source material itself and well, I, you know, they are, they're masterworks. They absolutely they are. are. And he completely changed the genre. That is not an overstatement. Uh, matter of fact, it's not even a genre. Let's face it. Graphic yeah. novels are actually a medium with which mm -hmm. to bring about compelling storytelling. You look at Neil Gaiman, what he did with Sandman, and then you've got everything yeah. that Grant Morrison has done that has blown our minds. And then you got Alan Moore here and that entire British invasion and the burger books and all that stuff. I mean, he is just part of the fabric of the evolution here of complex comics. And I mean complex, not for the sake of being over complex, but complex mm -hmm. for the fact that these things are bringing the same weight to them that epic novels, mm -hmm. what are very pretentiously called literature here 
uh, bring to bear, but just doing it panel to panel. And Al Allen is one of the best that we have ever seen from a writer standpoint, a real rock star. And it's rare that in a visual medium doc, we would have such a luminary come into this, but over on the writing side of the house, same can be Mm -hmm. said for Neil Gaiman too. Yeah, absolutely. From from that standpoint, these are truly unique characters. And I know Grant Morrison had a little bit of an artistic background, visual artistic background, but he himself would even say, hey, look, I pale in comparison to any of my visual collaborators that I've worked with. So, you know, it's really interesting that he ushered in the era of the author to a predominantly visual medium and changed it forever. So from that standpoint, Alan, it's why we have an entire month dedicated to you here on Kirby's Kids, which frankly, Jack Kirby would be very proud of because if there has ever been an independence independent who then has worked for the big houses, it's Alan Moore. And he he is really the next generation after Jack Kirby who has ferociously fought for creator's rights. So from that standpoint, it just makes sense for us to celebrate Alan here every year in November. Doc, let's move on to our illustrator, Brian Boland, who we are very familiar with. And again, another comic book luminary. After publishing his first works in the underground comic scene, Brian Boland made his professional debut with a black Nigerian superhero called Power Man. Now, this is not to be confused with our Power Man from the Marvel comic books. This is a different one, okay? But he would become successful as an artist on Judge Dredd. At 2000 AD. Again, Doc, 2000 AD being that training ground, proving ground for young artists and writers. Mm-hmm. He would then come over to America. He was recruited by DC and would do Green Lantern covers. And then he was assigned to do the series Camelot 3000 with scriptwriter Mike Barr, which JJ and I reviewed. And that was just an, just an outstanding series just phenomenal it is a fantastic series yeah bolin would go on to be the artist on several batman series of course we're reviewing killing joke but he also collaborated with writers garth ennis neil gaiman alan moore mike barr and done many cover illustrations for the dc vertigo comic series imprint vamps and blood and waters among others and he produced short stories for the english anthology taboo so I know I've run down that little encapsulation of his career before, but I wanted to give him his due here because this is truly a visual tour de force. Absolutely. It, it's, it's amazing how he brought Alan Moore's vision to life here on The Killing Joke. Doc, do you have any reflections, personal reflections of having taken in any of Brian Boland's work other than what we viewed here in Killing Joke? Yeah, um, uh, I you know right now I'm drawing a blank. I know I've read I've I've read many comics that he's drawn, and I always loved his art because you can always tell you can always pick his work out. He's uh, he's he has a very defi- definitive lines that he uses um, when he's drawing, and you can always tell when it's a it's a Bolin um, character, no matter what he's drawing. And I'm always I've always been impressed with his work. And here, like you said, it it just really perfectly brings what Moore is is telling us in storytelling. 
storytelling um, visually. He, I don't think he could have done it without Bolin. It was, it was the perfect matchup for um, for art, and I think he killed it in this. And um, as he as he does in most of his in most of his books, I think he's. Uh, I, I've never been disappointed reading one of his uh, books with the with the visuals. He always nails it and knocks it out of the park. Agreed. I agreed. It's um, it's going to be interesting uh, here with respect to our review and it, you nailed it with regard to hitting it out of the park because I've never encountered a Bolin work that didn't wow me exactly. in, in some way, shape or form. And I, and I go back to that Camelot 3000 that I reviewed with JJ and the illustrative work in there of blending of the the classic Arthurian legends with modern day sensibilities is just amazing. And then also making it rather cosmic on top of all of that. So mm -hmm. just, just great stuff. Great stuff. So doc, what I'd like to do next is head into a little comics archeology span because we're dealing with such an epic work that had a sonic boom or massive ripple effect throughout the entire not only comic book industry, but entertainment industry. What indeed has been the lasting impact and history of the influence of The Killing Joke? I said that, good man. What shoes have you found there? Comics Archaeology. All right, Doc, we're in comics archaeology here. We're digging up some gems, and I want to start this discussion off with a Tim Burton quote, okay? This is the man who brought us Batman 89 and, and then transformed cinema as it related to Batman finally being portrayed with some ounce of seriousness here on the mm -hmm. big screen, all right? Tim Burton claimed that The Killing Joke was a major influence on his film adaptation of Batman. I was never a giant comic book fan, but I've always loved the image of Batman and the Joker. The reason I've never been a comic book fan, and I think it started when I was a kid, is because I could never tell which box I was supposed to read. I don't know if it was dyslexia or whatever, but that's why I love The Killing Joke, because for the first time, I could tell which one to read. It's my favorite. It's the first comic I've ever loved, and the success of those graphic novels made our ideas more acceptable. Okay. So right Very then and cool. there, yeah, right then and there, you had a, a, a influence um, you know, being claimed there by Burton. Now, let's go on to see what he did, because you know, he read that book when he was in development of that first film. Where I think that book, Doc, perhaps made a deeper impact was on the darker version of Tim Burton's two Batman films, that being mm -hmm. Batman Returns. So despite the Joker not appearing in Batman Returns, uh, there was at least one scene that had similarities to a scene from The Killing Joke in particular. After Selina Kyle ended up using the last of her nine lives to take out Max Shrek, the Penguin having survived his descent into the waters underneath Gotham there, into that penguin exhibit, 
attempts to use one of his umbrellas. With Batman witnessing it at the last second and looking concerned, only for Penguin to realize upon activating it that he accidentally picked the cute umbrella instead of his gun umbrella, which was similar to how Joker, upon being beaten by Batman here in The Killing Joking. Yes, folks, we're going to spoil this one because this is a a seminal work that first came out in the 80s. But I think this is worth bringing up and how perhaps Burton cherry-picked some scenes here. He, similar to how the Joker, upon being beaten by Batman, attempted to use his gun to kill Batman, only to realize that upon firing it, that he actually had used up all of the rounds. So, and shown by using a pop-out flag saying, click, click, click. So, indeed, there's beats here. There's sources of inspiration that are taking place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what's really fun. Knowing um, because this is such a seminal work, you can see once you once you've read this a few times and you know the art and you know the story, you can see how um, it's reflected in a lot of um, modern day. Like you said, it's re- this has, this this story has reverberated still to this day. Um, you know, with, you know, we'll get to like know like we talked about. Um, um, we'll probably talk a little bit more deeper about some of the characters and and the arcs that they take in this. Um, but it's reverberated to this very day, and it's uh, and you can see it in movies. Even you know, obviously with Christopher Nolan's um dark dark uh night trilogy um that second one or sorry the yeah the second one um with with Heath, Heath Ledger's Joker it's um you know it's it's rumored that um you know he was given a copy of the killing joke and they didn't tell him be the Joker here. They were just giving that to Heath Ledger as a little bit of inspiration of where the character could go. And um, I think we could see a lot of that Joker. There may not be scenes plucked directly from the, from the killing joke, but you can, you can see that um, the, uh, the, the mentality of, of, of Heath Ledger's Joker, you could definitely see some influence from Moore's killing joke without a doubt. And, um, and I think that's, what's interesting is it is such a character. It's like, you know, you talked about the Joker's first appearance. Um, it's 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 amazing when you look at that first appearance of Joker that he actually is still around to this day and he's such a um, uh, an impactful character on Batman's life and psyche, um, you know, from that very first origin or from the first time that he was introduced. Um, he's really become this major player in, and I, I love the dichotomy with you know they're they're kind of the same person. And I think we'll get into that a little bit more um, you know, as we talk a little bit more about the story. But it's a it's a really interesting um, you know putting in the words that we're using archaeology of it um, that you can see this Joker still being um, very influential to this day, and it wasn't never meant to be canon story, and it is now. It is no doubt. It is a canon story. Yeah, indeed, Doc. And it would go on to influence video games that would come out in the 90s and the 2000s. But then I want to now roll over to a director who I think even more so than Burton. So I got to give Burton credit for really paving the way here for Nolan, Christopher Nolan's vision to actually come to the big screen. Mm -hmm. Because you talk about a Batman really grounded in reality. And again, in air quotes, reality, folks, we're talking fiction here. That's Nolan's Dark Knight. So Christopher Nolan had mentioned that the killing joke served as an influence for the version of the Joker that appeared in The Dark Knight. Heath Ledger, who played the Joker, stated in an interview that he was given a copy of The Killing Joke as reference for the role. The most apparent influence of the graphic novel on the narrative itself 
would be the Joker's concept of his past as being multiple choice. In the film, he describes two conflicting scenarios to explain the origins of his scars to two different people, as well as his claim that a bad day could drive anyone mad, which he tries to prove through tormenting Gordon in the comic book and Harvey Dent in the film. Both Jokers also explain their behavior and attitude as seeing what a twisted joke the world is, with the film stating in society their morals, their code, it's a bad joke, dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. Now, in addition, the Joker, when relaying the second of his infamous scar stories to Rachel Dawes, says to her, now I see the funny side. Now I'm always smiling, which was similar to the line. So why can't you see the funny side? Why aren't you laughing? Which is also uttered by the Joker in the graphic novel, A Killing Joke. When revealing that he drove Harvey Dent insane as his ace in the hole for the Battle of Gotham's soul, Joker then explains how it wasn't hard for him to accomplish says that madness was similar to gravity in that all it takes is a little push, <laughs> which was similar to Joker's line in The Killing Joke, saying that all it takes is one bad day for the sanest man alive to be reduced to lunacy. Okay. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so there you go. I mean, that literally was just plucked out of the graphic novel. And insert it in. Okay. Now, we also have a scene here that is so iconic and would have reverberations and would actually develop a whole blown new superhero, a transformation of Barbara Gordon. Mm -hmm. The infamous scene of Joker paralyzing Barbara Gordon. Doc. What would Barbara Gordon then turn into? Oracle. Bingo. Birds of Prey. Oracle. Yep, birds of Prey. So this set that in motion. And I, I could go on and on and on here in comics archaeology of how this graphic novel spawned all of these different influences. And a lot of it would end up being perpetuated in video games and storylines of video games from Batman Arkham City and all of the various DLCs that would then be attached to all these different Batman video games. You would have a DC animated original film, Batman Under the Red Hood would pluck from The Killing Joke. You would also have in the final... Um, manifestation of this in 2016 a faithful animated adaptation of batman the killing joke and we're going to do a review of that movie after we hop onto our literary aisle but i will say as far as impact is concerned culturally the success of the tv series gotham owes 
uh, Jerome Valeska's characterization being largely based on the Joker. And to a lesser extent, um, his twin brother actually becoming the Joker in that series. Elements of the killing joke were used in some of his appearances. And in particular, in the episode Knock Knock, Jerome's speech about how people are prisoners to their sanity and comparing it to a prison in their minds that obscures their being, tiny little cogs in a giant absurd machine before telling them to be free, like the maniacs, was similar to Joker's memories monologue in The Killing Joke. So there, there's just an exclamation point to a live-action TV series in Gotham gaining inspiration off The Killing Joke, and then, of course, then finally DC saying, okay, you know what? Enough's enough here. Let's do our own animated adaptation of The Killing Joke, which, by the way, Doc, was rated R on top of that. Oh, yeah. So to their credit, DC chose to be faithful to the source material and give us a rated R movie that got the iconic voices of Kevin Conroy in there, along with then Mark Hamill playing the Joker. Oh, my gosh. So I don't want to jump the gun here, literally, (laughs) and start reviewing the film, but I just want to tee that up here on Comics Archaeology. So, Doc, we have chronicled a major amount of influences here in Comics Archaeology of The Killing Joke. Do you have any last thoughts here before we then head over to our literary aisle to discuss the story itself? Yeah, just the the one thing, and I know we'll probably touch on it more when we do talk about the story. But like, the, just the whole thing of the origin, how you how you kind of mention it, and I, you know, I'm going to bring up a panel that's in the Killing Joke that um, you know it's always been a contention. It's like, and I think it's um, uh, it's a contention with writers and creators and everything. It's like sometimes not knowing the origin of somebody is creepier than knowing the origin of somebody. And I think with the Joker, I think that's where the power of, of him lies. It's like, it, like when, just to bring up the example of the movie of the dark knight when he when they kept talking about the scars how he got the scars um it was super creepy because we don't know exactly what the story is and it's like wait does the joker not know what the origin is anymore you know so it's and that's what i loved about how nolan wrote that it's you don't know if the joker just forgot is it was it such a trauma that he actually blocked it and he, he's just coming up or is he doing his own Kaiser Sozi kind of thing where he wants to make himself more mysterious and more deadly and things like that by putting forth these stories. So the origin, you know, we even saw, saw that, um, what was it? I'm going to say two or three years ago, uh, two years ago, um, we had the three jokers, um, written by Jeff Johns and, um, um, you know, which, which explored the fact that there are three jokers in a DC universe. And uh, again, that plays around with the different kinds of, um, um, of origins. So I've always been fascinated with the idea of the, not, not, no, not wanting to specifically know the origin of the Joker, but just how they've used that as kind of a trope um that um that they've used to um, you know build upon his mysteriousness and his deadliness and i've always i've always really liked that about the joker not knowing exactly what his background is yeah great point doc great great point there that's you know as we've said before sometimes shrouding something in mystery is far more effective than the actual reveal and i know you and i have gone back to this on countless occasions you know bruce the shark from jaws prime yeah. example of it yeah okay so as much as you can leave Joker as a contradiction unto himself, I think that makes him even more unsettling as a character. Absolutely. So with that being said, Doc, let's head over to our literary aisle to discuss 
our story here of the killing joke and the incredible visual storytelling of one Brian Boland. I want to talk. <laughs> been thinking about you and me, about how this is going to end, about who will end up killing who. Perhaps you'll kill me. Perhaps I'll kill you. You know that, don't you? Kids, eggs, shouts, we go on.